Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Clint Smith, author of the poetry collection Above Ground. So much of what taught us to be writers, the spaces that served as incubators for our literary sensibilities were those sort of dingy open mic venues. It was those poetry slams where, you know, just 10 people would show up. It was the um, community that we built that shaped our literary instincts, that shaped our politics, that shaped our sense of uh, responsibility and, and community alongside one another. We'll be back with Clint Smith after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest, there is so much free content out there and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, 
writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My interview today is with Clint Smith, author of the narrative nonfiction book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, which was a number one New York Times bestseller, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction, and the Hillman Prize for Book Journalism. It was also selected by the New York Times as one of the best books of 2021. Smith is also the author of the poetry collection Counting Descent, which won the 2017 Literary Award for Best Poetry Book from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic. His new poetry collection, Above Ground, traverses the vast emotional terrain of fatherhood as Smith explores how becoming a parent recalibrated his sense of the world. The poems in the collection wrestle with simultaneous gratitude and despair, how we carry intimate moments of joy and a collective sense of mourning all in the same body, and the wonder and ephemerality of the natural world and our time on earth. We began the discussion with Clint Smith talking about how he came to poetry. Yeah, there's a couple different ways to think about that question. Um, I remember in third grade, I had a teacher, Ms. Mueller, and we were assigned to write a poem about a color. And you got to choose your color. And I remember I chose the color gray. I don't know why I chose gray. I was a solemn, serious child, I guess. And I remember the poem, it went something like this. It was, I hate the color gray. It reminds me of a rainy day. Gray, I really hate that color. It's annoying, like my little brother. And she came over. She looked at the poem on my desk. She turned to me and she said, Clint, that was beautiful. You can be a writer when you grow up. For all I know, she might have said that to every single kid in the class. For all I know, she might have uh, said it and forgot it right after. Um, but that moment stayed with me for the rest of my life. And that's not to create a neat linear relationship between this moment in third grade and now making a life as a professional writer. Uh, but it is to say that I, I, I tell that story all the time, especially to teachers, because you never know how what you tell a young person is going to impact them. Um, and, you know, so that moment was really special for me. And I remember feeling invigorated and feeling like, oh, like, okay, I can write poems. And I had a little notebook, a tie-dye notebook uh, that I wrote poems in. And, uh, you know, our poems and, and language were, were a part of my life since I was young. And to varying degrees, I also thought I was going to be a professional soccer player when I was a kid. And so, uh, everything kind of, at, at some point, poetry uh, sort of took a backseat to my dreams of playing in the English Premier League. Um, but I came back to it in part because I got a scholarship to play soccer in college. And I had a very successful high school career. Uh, I was like all city, all state, all, you know, in the paper. But I got to college, I played at Davidson College, a small school, but a division one school. 
and I didn't get a lot of playing time. And I had this sort of 18-year-old existential crisis where I, this thing that had been so central to my identity for so much of my life, I was no longer good at anymore. And it was, a, I remember in 2008, the summer between my sophomore and junior year of, high, of college, I was in New York City and I had an internship at a publishing house. And one of my fellow interns on a Friday night, she came to me and she said, Clint, let's go to this place called the New Eureka Poets Cafe. And I was like, the New Eureka Poets Cafe? Like, what is that? Like, I never heard of that place. I was like, no, 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 let's go see Mission Impossible 2. Tom Cruise has a new movie. We should go see that. And she was like, boo, no, you're whack. We're not going to do that. We're going to the New Eureka Poets Cafe. And for, for those who are listening, know, you know, the New Eureka is this legendary spoken word poetry spot at the, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it is just a legendary in the, in the sort of, uh, in the, amid the legacy of, of literature and, uh, and poetry in, in New York City. And, and I went and it was just unlike any literary experience I'd ever encountered. You know, they're playing, there's a DJ who's playing like Biggie and Nas and there's people who look, you know, black people and brown people and immigrants and queer folks and, uh, and people were drinking and laughing. I was like, is this a poetry reading? Like, what is, I had never seen anything like this. And I remember one of the first poems I ever heard was by a woman who had cerebral palsy. And she got on stage and she did this poem about living with her condition. And in the span of three minutes, the way I thought about an entire demographic of people completely changed. Like I left that night never thinking about disability the same way again. And I was so, I, I couldn't remember the last time I had been so viscerally moved by art. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want to do it. And so I left that night and I went back to Davidson and I started a poetry club at Davidson and we sort of cosplayed Dead Poet Society and got together on Sunday nights in the uh, basement of the library and wrote poems and read poems and performed poems and workshop poems. And, and poems, and since then, uh, poems became a really central part of my life. I'd, I was part of this sort of uh, DC slam poetry scene when I moved here and was a teacher uh, in 2011. Uh, even before that, when I uh, lived in South Africa, uh, in Johannesburg, I was, uh, after I graduated from college, I was part of this sort of literary and performing arts scene in Johannesburg. And, and I just kept doing it. I went to every open mic I could, every poetry slam I could, um, every reading I could. And, and over the course of the years, started branching out into different genres started writing more nonfiction, started writing, um, you know, experimenting in other forms and mediums. And, uh, but, but all that is to say, poetry is and has been my North Star. Um, you know, even when I'm writing narrative nonfiction, when I'm writing essays for The Atlantic, when I'm writing um, anything, it's uh, poetry is the center of that, uh, of that work. Um, it is, it's the heart of that work, no matter what genre I'm working in. Is that poetry place still there? The New Eureka Post Cafe is still there. Yeah. It's been there for, I mean, it's been there for, for decades and I know it was closed like so many places, uh, during the pandemic, but, but my understanding is that it's come back and, uh, it's, it's just, it's home for so many people. It's, uh. There's, and it's, it's not only a place where there's poetry events, there's all people put on plays, people put on, it's a, it's a, it's a community venue, it's an artistic venue. Um, 
and it's a really special place. I haven't been back in many, many years. Um, and hopefully I can, can get back. But I know that there's an entire sort of generation of us, uh, of writers who, who came through the New Yorican and through places like that. You know, I, I think about, there's a, a sort of group of us who came up in the slam poetry scene together um, in our teenage years, in our early 20s. And met so many of us, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Nate Marshall, Eve Ewing, Anif Abdul-Rakib, Sarah Kay, Elizabeth Acevedo, Safia Hilo, Danez Smith. I mean, the list goes on and on. So many of us who began our literary careers in the performance poetry space and have since, and that was our sort of entry point into literature, our entry point into understanding the way that uh, our voices could have, could stake a claim in a sort of literary ecosystem that had not always felt like it was welcoming to people like us. And it was so important. And I think now you see, you know, so many of us who are working in different genres, writing novels, writing plays, writing comic books, writing television, writing movies, writing, I mean, it's amazing to see what everybody's done. Uh, but so much of that early work, so much of what taught us to be writers, the spaces that served as incubators for our literary sensibilities were those sort of dingy open mic venues. It was those poetry slams where, you know, just 10 people would show up. It was the um, community that we built that shaped our literary instincts, that shaped our politics, that shaped our sense of uh, responsibility and, and community alongside one another. And I look back, I, I know that nothing that has happened in my life as a writer you know, with my books or now being a writer at the Atlantic or, or any of it would have ever been possible uh, had it not been for spaces like the New Yorican. And if you had really wanted to see Mission Impossible that badly? Yeah, you know, it's the Tom Cruise movies, they are, they are exciting. And they're, they're, you know, Mission Impossible, that was a whole franchise, a whole genre. It's, uh, but I'm very glad that my friend, uh, Mariana Shepard, I'll shout out Mariana Shepard, incredible artist, incredible writer. Um, she was like, no, I'm dragging you with me to the New York Poets Cafe. And, and every, it's fun. Every time I see her, whenever I go, she's, we're both from New Orleans. And uh, every time I go back home, I try to grab coffee with her. And, uh, and every time the first thing I say is like, man, you really, you, you changed the trajectory of my life. And I don't know if we say that to people who do that to us. And some, like sometimes you know somebody changed your life or you know that a, a single moment like I'm, I'm big into sort of chaos theory, butterfly effect, like that. Th and so many of those are small moments where you don't even recognize it and you don't know. But there are moments where it's very clear that your life was at a at the sort of proverbial crossroads and you could have gone one direction. Like I could have gone and saw, seen Mission Impossible 2. And maybe I would have ended up at the New Yorkian somehow at some point anyway. But uh but Mariana insisted that we go that Friday night to the New York Post Cafe, and it, it, my life was never the same after that. And so I, I try to make a point to, to let her know that. Um, and uh, you know, she's very, very humble. She's like, no, 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 I didn't do anything. But, but I guess it, it, it is something I try to do more of, um, to like let. It's the same, the same sensibility around like telling people how much they mean to you. When they're still there right like you don't want it to be the case where somebody 
you know, for one reason or another is no longer a part of your life and you've never let them know how important they were to you. Uh, I think it's also important to let people know when they had really significant impacts on your life and, and that you can see it very clearly and, and to try to express that gratitude uh, in any way you can. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, it's interesting that you're, you're mentioning these two moments from your third grade teacher to your friend Mariana. And also this idea that I think both of those moments might have been a, a sort of transcendence for you. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what I got out of this collection was above ground was this holiness, this succulence about life and the awe, but also alongside the pain and the possibility of annihilation all kind of happening together at once. And I got this sense that maybe you even had a moment of uh, like a sublime transcendent moment watching cicadas and I don't know if that's kind of what brought this all together but just curious about your reaction to my read so far of of that yeah no I I, I appreciate it so much I mean it, it's interesting you know you work with you work in publishing and there's marketing and, and sales and there's certain ways that the book is presented to the world and it's you know this book is is presented and and is a poem that is in many ways centered on fatherhood um, and centered on the way that becoming a parent has animated the way that I understand the world and the way that I move through the world. But within that is this idea of, that, that I think you were exactly right on, this idea of the, the sort of duality of the human experience and the way that interpersonal moments of wonder and awe and, and gratitude can often and do often exist amid a larger personal or political backdrop of devastation, of annihilation, of catastrophe. And the question that I ask in this collection, and I think the kind of the overarching question in so much of my work, is what does it mean to hold all of that at once? What does it mean to, to carry wonder and despair in your body at the same time? What does it mean to, to feel uh, a sort of ineffable joy watching your child discover a part of the world for the first time while someone else in your family has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, right? And, it, and because for me, that is, you know, even just through the lens of parenthood itself, it is, parenthood is the most remarkable, awe-inspiring, beautiful experience in so many ways that I've ever had. And it is the most fear-inducing. It is the most humbling. It is the most difficult. It is the most exhausting thing that I've ever done. And, it, and I, I, I'm interested in how we lean into rather than step away from or evade that complexity, um, both within the context of our, our family lives and the way that what's happening in our personal lives, uh, the sort of dialectic between the, the personal joy and the larger um, sort of geopolitical threat, uh, the sort of larger ecological threat uh, that we all live with. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I felt the buzzing, if that makes sense. Like almost like like the buzzing of a live wire that you go by that, you know, there's these be- so much beauty in this moment, but so much happening at once all over the world and so much happening like in the DNA of of who you are, like all the ancestors that you're carrying with you and same thing with the earth, like all the ways that the earth used to be in one piece when it was Pangea and you have a poem to that, to, you know, kind of the impossibility of why can't we hear like a bomb going off in Israel right now when it is happening simultaneously to maybe someone's first kiss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And and what is our, the thing I like about poems is that it allows you to wrestle with a question without having to have a particular set of answers. Um, and if anything, you can begin the poem with one question and the poem with another or in the poem with several more, right? And so, so many of the questions and, and some of what you're alluding to What I'm doing is not, I'm not trying to necessarily find an answer to these questions as much as using the poem as a space to name them and to, and to wrestle with them and to excavate them uh, and to come to an understanding that there is no single answer. There is no right answer, right? It is true that you know, I, you, you go and you listen to NPR in the morning and you hear about, as you said, you know, dozens of Palestinians who've been killed or you hear about, um, you know, you think about the soldiers who are being killed um, in the uh, battle between Ukraine and, and Russia. You think about, uh, you know, children in Afghanistan who have hardly any food to eat and you don't even have to look, it doesn't always have to be a sort of uh, through the lens of of geopolitics, it's also within our own lives. You know, we we are. I think about you know moments when, and this is what I talk about in the collection in some ways, where you know there are people in your life who who have overdosed, and you find out while you're at the park with your child pushing them on the swing on this beautiful sunny day, and, and it's how does one how does one hold those two things in your body at once? What, what is the appropriate way with which to move through the world as you carry all of that? Right. And those are just two, those are like two things, but the truth is that we're all carrying innumerable versions of that, you know, in ways that are more salient at different times or, um, of our of our lives, but but yeah, I think that is what that's probably the central animating question of my life, and I don't know that I ever will have an answer to it. But you know, I think it's present in the book Counting Descent. You know, my first book where I'm wrestling with you know 
that was written in the midst of the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, I was inundated with these, as we all were, inundated with these images of Black people being killed seemingly weekly at the hands of the state. And I also, at the same time that was happening, was meeting and falling in love with the woman who would become my wife. What does it mean to hold all of that at once? You know, in how the word is passed and doing it in a sort of, you know, way that's uh, undergirded with history, but like, what does it mean to recognize that America is both a place that has provided unprecedented opportunity for upward mobility for millions of people across generations in ways that their own ancestors could never imagine, and that it's also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of this country. Both of those things are the story of my life at that time. Both of those things are the story of what it means to be a parent in this moment. And so that is a sort of theme that emerges in, in so much of my, my work in different ways. Uh, because I think it's a question that I think about every day that I wake up. And I feel that, you know, from a lot of your poems that you're holding all this, no matter how maybe ugly or beautiful with this sort of sense of gratitude in your, in your, one of your early poems in the book, Waiting on a Heartbeat, you're talking about that maybe your child might not live in, in your wife's womb. Um, and you're worried about that and the mystery of it. And you talk about also going to the garden and you say, you do not go to a garden to watch the flowers grow. You go to give thanks for what has already bloomed. So I also felt like throughout the collection, not just in this poem, was a sense of presenting all of this to to the world and and walking away from it still feeling that wonder and awe and, and gratitude, which is different than wonder. Yeah, I think gratitude is a practice. Like, I, I don't think that gratitude is something that happens passively. I think, you know, and I think this is increasingly true the older I get, um, or my recognition of its truth it becomes increasingly um, salient the older I get. But you have to be proactive in engaging with gratitude and searching for gratitude and naming gratitude. You know, I think that's true in the context of, of a marriage, of a partnership, um, ensuring that gratitude is extended even so that the other person understands that you see them. I think uh, gratitude is important. It's been incredibly important in, you know, being a parent, uh, in part because, you know, when your kids are especially little, they're not going to thank you for anything, right? Like, and you, you are doing all of this stuff for a small human that is so desperately reliant upon you and yet does not have the tools with which to extend gratitude to you. Um, so part of it, you know, part of what these poems were doing in so many ways was like me, the poems themselves are, are a sort of practice of extending gratitude in moments where I otherwise might not see them. 
if that makes sense, right? Po the poems are, they are sort of excavations of moments. They are attempts to, at, at capturing uh, moments in time. They're time capsules, they're poetic archives um, where I'm trying to name a moment, hold on to a moment, uh, dig into the specificity and granularity of, of a moment or a thing that was said or a thing that was witnessed. And to remember how remarkable it is. And, and I think, you know, I, I think about, a, it's almost a, many of these poems are like a celebration of the quotidian. And I think about Ross Gay's work, incredible poet and essayist, who, you know, I, I just was re recently rereading his book, uh, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. And, you know, he has poems in there that are like, Ode to Unbuttoning My Shirt, Ode to Sleeping in My Clothes, uh, Ode to the, the Fig Tree in the backyard. You know, it's, it's, and it's a celebration of these things that we might otherwise overlook. And part of what I'm trying to do is that in the context of, in part, in, in the context of parenting. And that doesn't only mean lifting up and celebrating that which is, uh, which is, makes you feel good, but it also means lifting up and naming that which is frightening and that which is unsettling and that which is, uh, induces the, you know, a sort of existential fear. I was thinking it'd be nice if you could read a poem and we could talk about it. And I have, I was thinking trying to light a candle in the wind. I have a few I'd like you to read, but I also want you to read if you're like moved to read something right now, what you would choose. Trying to light a candle in the wind. Each evening, ever since the doctor told us how uncertain you were, your mother lifts her shirt and rubs Vaseline around her navel, her two fingers moving in circles across her growing gorgeous belly. We put the Doppler to her skin, its cool surface sending goosebumps across her body. I place the small headphones in my ear and listen as you somersault back and forth between the walls your mother built for you. I am here, I feel you say. I'm still here. Your mother and I smile a mix of joy and relief and marvel at all you have already given us. Our lives, an endless procession of doctor's appointments and lab tests, and moments just like this one. But some days, I worry that we are welcoming you into the flames of a world that is burning. Some days, I'm afraid I am more kindling than water. I wonder if you just want to talk about that. You know, I sense this, you know, you're standing next to this miracle, this child that you were never sure each moment if it was still going to be there. And it's speaking to you. It's saying, I'm still here. I'm still here. And you're feeling uh, that awe that it's there and it's coming and it's going to be this life that you give. And then you turn inward to like what could go wrong. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's kind of as, as we've been speaking to, it is a recognition and an attempt to name that those two feelings, so often sit alongside one another and, and, and were sat alongside one another for so much of my wife's pregnancy. I mean, the, you know, it was a very complicated pregnancy. It was a very, 
uncertain and precarious pregnancy in so many ways. Uh, you know, I, I just remember the feeling of waking up every morning and just hoping everything was still okay. And then being so grateful when it was. And then moving back toward a sort of larger fear of my own inability to protect this child to be from a world that often feels plagued with violence and despair and catastrophe. I just, it was attempt, an attempt to just be honest about this sort of constant movement between gratitude and fear um, that animated so much of those early days and into various degrees, you know, continues to, to animate different parts of, of my life and, and how I think about my children today. You know, now my kids are five and four and, uh, and I, I still think of what it means to, you know, my, my son is learning to read and like, and it's, it's, it's remarkable to look at him experience language in a way that he never has. Like you, you literally are watching this person see the world open up to them. And he's so, you know, we're driving in the car and suddenly he's able to understand what signs say and what like, and, and it, it truly is as, as if like you were seeing a different part of the world that you could never see before. Like the world is made legible in a different sort of way. And watching that happen has been so, it's just been so cool because I remember when he was a baby and I was like, I can't even conceptualize you being able to speak. Like, I can't even imagine it. Like you being able to talk. And now he's like learning to read and it's just, and so that wonder, that astonishment at, at the development of your child also sits alongside a recognition of like, okay, you know, now the fear that comes with, you know, is he making friends or people treating him well at school or is, um, you know, the, the sort of social, their social worlds when they enter elementary school or so, you know, it's not preschool anymore. It's a very different social ecosystem. And, you know, is he, how's he feeling? How's he experiencing? You know, so all of this is the wonder and the worry are just always together. Um, and, uh, and I, I think that that's just what it means to be a parent. That's what people tell me. Does that live for you in your daily conversations with your wife? Or is it more saved for the poetry? It does. I mean, we we talk often about the things that they do that we find silly, funny, surprising. And also, you know, we talk about the things that make us nervous or the things we worried about that we worry about. But there is something specific about the poems. Because sometimes I can articulate something or make sense of something in a poem or in any sort of writing that I, I, nece I can't necessarily, when I'm speaking about it or talking about it, right? Like poetry both is the creation of art, but it is also the mechanism through which I do my best thinking. And so for me, the writing is the thinking. And so like writing is my way of exploring how it makes me feel um, and exploring and digging sort of deeper, moving beyond the proverbial surface of, 
of what I am carrying in way, even when it's not, uh, not like at the top of my consciousness. Um, and sometimes you, you don't realize things you're carrying because they, they exist deeper within you and it takes more, uh, more digging, more excavation. So, so it's a, a sort of both and, I guess, like, you know, these are certainly conversations I have with my wife, but sometimes I don't even know the extent to which it's, it's a part of my consciousness or a part of my thinking until I start to write about it. Yeah. That's what I think is so interesting. Like about you're saying your kid, like watching him learn how to read, like how many languages we have within ourselves and how like the language of our thought and the language we have in conversation and the language when you talk to your child and the language when you go to write are like different in a way. Like they, it comes out, they're, they're all you, but they, they just have their own kind of energy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And they're all in conversation with one another in so many ways. But there are things that I can say in a poem that I might not have the space to or the, or even the wherewithal, right? Because like it is, writing poetry makes me aware of things that I wasn't otherwise aware of within myself. And, you know, this book has 70-ish poems in it, but they're, you know, on my laptop and in my notebook and in my, in the notes app on my iPhone, there are hundreds of poems um, that, that will only ever exist, you know, for me. Uh, but, but this book emerged not because I was sat down and tried to write a, said I wanted to write a book about fatherhood. It was that poems were the the very natural way that I was processing the past several years of my life, both in the context of fatherhood and the things that were happening in the sort of larger backdrop of, uh, of all of our lives and in, and in my life. So, you know, these poems are poems that would exist with or without uh, a book being published. And, uh, and it's like I said, there's, there are attempts to capture moments in time, attempts to capture complexity, attempts to capture nuance and duality, uh, and to remember that I can look back at these poems, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, and, and say, and remember these moments with a different level of texture than I might otherwise uh, be able to. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the cicadas. They come up in two of your poems. The first one is for the doctor's record. And this is a poem where you're chronicling your aches and pains and then the sickness and, and death of people that you know and love from, um, you know, you eating fried food and too much salt to your father's Alzheimer's. So it's it's really weighty. And then you have this moment where you say... I remain astonished by how cicadas live for 17 years underground and then die within weeks of coming up to meet the world. It's a moment of, I think, reverence and astonishment. And there's a lot of poetry in just the cicadas life. And I also thought when I read that, I didn't know that later there was going to be a poem called Above Ground, but I thought, oh, this is probably where he got the title. So I was just curious about if you had like one particular moment with cicadas and then going more deeper into the title. Yeah. You know, cicadas are a recurring feature 
in much of my work. The my first book, Counting Descent, um, there's a poem called "What the Cicada Said to the Black Boy," and it's sort of a imagined conversation, uh, or maybe not conversation, an imagined telling of a cicada talking to a black child uh, and giving them giving them advice. And I, you know, one of the, the thing about the cicadas that that interest me the most is their their life cycle you know that um the cicadas that i'm you know speaking to they they live for 17 years underground and then come up and they mate and they die and you know so it's interesting the sort of the rhythm to their life cycles is one that serves as its own interesting set of markers in time, right? And so, you know, in Above Ground, I'm with my children who are then, uh, I think, four and two. And we are looking at the cicadas that are, and the shells of the cicadas that are sort of strewn across our lawn. Uh, and I live in Maryland, and they're very present here. And, and I remember specifically the sound, waking up and hearing the, just the hum, the steady hum that was sort of ubiquitous for weeks of of these cicadas. And and thinking like, well, next time the cicadas come, you know, my children will be twenty one and nineteen. And it's again one of those moments where I'm like, I can't imagine. Who, like, who are these children going to be when they're 21 and 19? The same way that I couldn't imagine my son speaking, you know, when he was a baby and now he's reading. is the same, like, imagining my child as a teenager, imagining them as a 21-year-old. It's, it just is so, it's interesting for me to think about this moment in which I'm watching them explore this sort of landscape of, cicada shells all around us uh, to be frightened of them and then to be sort of in awe of them and to think about how singular this moment is because the next time the cicadas come you know they'll be it looks different right a 21 year old and 19 year old looking at cicadas is very different than a four-year-old and a two-year-old looking at cicadas and and so it's i think in some ways um uh they represent a sort of natural manifestation of how fleeting these moments are, right? Like there's only one time that I will get to see my children as children experience cicadas and then it's gone and then it's done, right? Because the next time the cicadas come, they'll be adults. And I think that it captures the desire I have again, to write into space and to write into a sort of, to capture a feeling, to capture a moment in time um, with hopes of, of holding on to it. You know, what it also does is, is poems like this, they also make me more fully present in some way. Like the act of writing, a, when I sit down to write a poem about, you know, collecting cicadas, you know, in, in buckets with my kids, like they were treasure. What it does is remind me of how important those sorts of moments are to be fully present for, because soon you won't have them anymore. And that's not to say I'm perfect at it, right? I don't want to like misrepresent and be like, 
I'm, you know, I'm always the most present dad. I'm all, I struggle in the same way that everybody does with phones and technology and work and, you know, and it's hard, but the poems are my attempt at, in some ways, like holding myself accountable. Like, look, look at this, be, be here with this, be still with this, observe this, capture this. Um, and for me, and I think that looks different for different people, but for me, poems, they help me do that. I feel like there is a sense also in here, though, at least in a few poems of almost like the idea that you can live twice. And what I mean by that is like in your poem tradition, you're talking about making French toast the way that your father made French toast um, with your kids and that in a way it's almost like your father is inhabiting you and you are inhabiting him and you are also inhabiting your children as when you were children. And so I, I read this poem and I had this sense at the end that it was like almost like otherworldly in a way that this idea of things going on at the same time. I mean, we were talking about how like a bomb may be going off in Israel or Palestine at the same time that someone's having their first kiss. And that's kind of like linear time, but maybe the time in some of these poems are nonlinear time that somehow your young father, when he was making you French toast and you making French toast exist in this universe where they're happening at the same time. Mm. That's, that's beautifully put. So much of my being a father does feel like a sort of flattening in time, like in the ways that like I come to inhabit him, or perhaps I guess the way he inhabits me, which is to say that like, I will be speaking to my kids and I will hear my dad's voice like emerge from within like I, I will like recognize that I am communicating with them almost in the exact same way that my dad communicated with me. Um, and I feel very lucky that, that I have, you know, I have a great relationship with my dad. My dad was always so steady, so reliable. Um, just a good, good dude. Just like a good, a good man. And I do try in so many ways to, give my children much of this, the steadiness and the consistency that my father, I think, gave to me. And so much of parenting, I think, is, and I write about this in the book, but like, it's looking at the parts of your own, of the ways you were parented, that you want to hold on to, and that you want to pass down as, as a sort of heirloom to your kids. And also the parts of parenting that you want to do differently, you know, and without, it doesn't necessarily have to be an indictment of your own parents. It's that things change over the course of generations. You're, you know, I'm always thinking about that negotiation because you're also not, you're not only negotiating, thinking about what you want to carry from your own parents or what you want to leave behind, but it's also, there's this other person, you know, this person you're co-parenting with who has their own ideas of what they want to bring from their parents and what they want to leave behind. And so it's the, it's putting those things in conversation with one another. It's the sort of dance of those two things, the, that 
come together to try to figure out how to best help these small humans, how to responsibly bring these small humans into the world. And it's, you know, something you, you try to figure out a little bit more every single day. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I want to read the, from the first section of the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, um, which is a, a writer and, uh, and a book that has shaped me and continues to shape me in profound ways. I was born in Tuckahoe, near Hillsboro, and about 12 miles from Easton in Talbot County, Maryland. I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen any authentic records containing it. By far, the larger part of the slaves know as little as the, of their ages as horses know of theirs. And it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. I do not remember to have ever met a slave who could tell of his birthday. They seldom come nearer to it than planting time, harvest time, cherry time, spring time, or fall time. A want of information concerning my own was a source of unhappiness to me, even during childhood. The white children could tell their ages. I could not tell why I ought to be deprived of the same privilege. I was not allowed to make any inquiries of my master concerning it. He deemed all such inquiries on the part of the slave improper and impertinent and evidence of a restless spirit. The nearest estimate I can give makes me now between 27 and 28 years of age. I come to this from hearing my master say sometime in 1835 that I was about 17 years old. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? You know, my, my last book, How the Word Has Passed, uh, explored how different historical sites um, reckon or fail to reckon with their, with their relationship to the history of slavery. And so I, I spent several years in the archives. I spent several years reading uh, slave narratives. I spent years, you know, with the sort of broader historiography of slavery um, and becoming more attuned to the horror of what slavery was in so many different ways. I think about Frederick Douglass all the time. You know, Frederick Douglass, he's often lifted up as this incredible freedom fighter, this abolitionist, this person who is this great catalyst for uh, the liberation for you know, millions of people. And that's absolutely true, but I, I think, you know, this is a literary podcast and, and sometimes he doesn't get the credit he deserves as like a writer. Like if, and, and to, to be an enslaved person prevented by law from learning how to read and write, to teach yourself how to read and write, and to become as fluent and eloquent as he became in the written word and the spoken word, it's, it's just staggering. It's staggering. Um, and he articulated the experience of enslaved people in ways that changed the course of history. And, and to be clear, like, you know, his experience as an enslaved person is not necessarily reflective of the experience of, of, you know, other enslaved people. Everyone's 
so many people's experiences were different, but he captured his writing, which is so extensive. And I, you know, I read from his most famous piece of writing, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, um, his, his first autobiography. But he wrote so prolifically across his life. And, you know, I think about um, David Blight's biography of Frederick Douglass, David Blight, the Yale historian, wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Frederick Douglass and his life, Douglass's life and writing is this remarkable chronicle of 19th century life in this country. Um, and, and he's, he's just someone I admire endlessly, not perfect man, not a man without his flaws. Um, but someone who contributed so much to our political landscape, but also our literary landscape. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft, or maybe something you just liked. Yeah, I'll read a poem, uh, another poem from Above Ground. This is titled, When People Say We Have Made It Through Worse Before. When people say we have made it through worse before, All I hear is the wind slapping against the gravestones of those who did not make it. Those who did not survive to see the confetti fall from the sky. Those who did not live to watch the parade roll down the street. I've grown accustomed to a lifetime of aphorisms meant to assuage my fears. Pithy sayings meant to convey that all ends up fine in the end. But there is no solace in rearranging language to make a different word tell the same lie. Sometimes the moral arc of the universe does not bend in a direction that comforts us. Sometimes it bends in ways we don't expect. And there are people who fall off in the process. Please, dear reader, do not say that I am hopeless. I believe there is a better future to fight for. I simply accept the possibility that I may not live to see it. I have grown weary of telling myself lies that I might one day begin to believe. We are not all left standing after the war has ended. Some of us have become ghosts by the time the dust has settled. And I chose that poem because that poem went through various drafts of me, because I was trying to write a poem about this idea um, that you know, literally, you know, as, as the title says, when people say we have made it through worse before, these sort of kind of platitudes, these sort of uh, sayings that people have that serve as, that are meant to serve as um, inspiration or meant to serve as, uh, as sorts of reassurance um, that everything will be okay after difficult moments in history and our personal lives and our larger socio-political lives. And, and that's just not true. Like, it's not true that everything is fine for everyone. Many people die. Many people experience profound loss, theft, uh, plunder. But part of what I realized I wasn't doing in those early drafts was implicating myself. And I had to make sure that if I was writing this poem, that it was not didactic or that it was not uh, pointing away 
at other people and away from me because part of the truth is that these are things that I've said. These are traps that I've fallen into. And I had to look inward and I had to look at myself and say, like, I'm the one who, I'm someone who has said these things and I have to ensure, it's almost, the, again, this idea of like the poem as accountability, where it's, I had to ensure that I was being forthright about the moments in which I have uh, similarly fallen into the trap of searching for empty reassurances that as a, that subsequently erase and don't take into account the experiences of people who don't end up fine in the end. Um, so, so yeah, I think that, but that required several drafts um, to get there and to recognize that that was the thing that was missing. Where do you write? Everywhere. I write everywhere. I think I, when we had kids, I was disabused of the idea that I would have long, luxurious writing sessions with incense and tea and the sun hitting you just so. Uh, I write at my desk. I write on trains. I write in airport terminals, on airplanes, in the barbershop, at the mechanic, at the, you know, I bring my laptop with me most places. Um, if I don't have my laptop, I have a notebook. If I don't have a notebook, I will write in the notes section of my iPhone. Um, I, you know, Imani Perry, incredible writer, incredible teacher, um, someone who has been very generous to me um, over the over the past several years. Um, we had lunch uh, many years ago when after we had my my wife and I had our first uh, child. And she was like, you have to let go of the idea that you're going to have these long, and she has two children of her own, um, single parent. And she was like, you have to let go of this idea that you're going to have these long extended sessions of, um, of writing time, right? And, and like, if you get 20 minutes, if you get 15 minutes, or if you can just write two paragraphs, that's enough, right? Because those will add up. And simple advice, but, but previously I had been someone who was like, I'd never have enough time. I never like, and now it's like you, you write where you can fit it in, you know? And so, uh, so I, I write everywhere, wherever I can. I'm not um, particular about where it happens. I just realize that I have, to, I have to make it happen. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I've been asking myself that question a lot because writing is, it's interesting when you have a career that you like so much. Like I love writing, I love reading, but it also makes... Like reading for pleasure is is a thing that it is unclear I'm able to do. Not that I don't, like I do read for pleasure, but even the act of reading for pleasure is adjacent to my work in ways that um, that I have to be honest about. And I'm, I'm, I imagine it's similar for, for many other writers. It's not to say that you don't, writing, that reading cannot be an act of relaxation or cannot be something that has nothing to do with your, the type of writing you do. But, you know, most writers I know, even when we're writing, reading for pleasure, we're still reading with the eye of a writer. Um, we're still looking for what, what sentences people are constructing, what sort of syntax they're using, what is the language there. So a thing that helps me get away is, um, I'm a big Arsenal fan, Arsenal, the soccer team in London. Um, and I've been a fan of them since I was 10 years old. 
and I consume like Arsenal content. I listen to like several several Arsenal podcasts, watch every Arsenal game, watch all the like YouTube behind the scenes Arsenal training session. I mean, like that's my that's my thing that has nothing to do with my my work life that um, helps keep me grounded and helps. And that's not, that is in no way like adjacent to um, something that uh, could be used under like a narrow uh, framework of like productivity um, or something that's, that's tied to becoming a better writer or becoming some idea of self-improvement. It's just, it just brings me joy. Just like watching these 11 guys run around on the field in England, just, uh, it just makes me really happy. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It depends. It depends. Sometimes it's my literary agent, Ali, Aliyah Hannah Habib. Sometimes it's my wife. Sometimes it is friends, other writers. Um, with this particular collection, uh, Safia El Hilo and, and uh, Elizabeth Acevedo. Uh, two dear friends who um, are part of a, a writing group that we've had for uh, for many years. We're, we're very close to and, and edited and gave early feedback to this collection. So um, their hands are, are all over this. Um, but it really depends on the project. It's, uh, and it, I feel lucky to have a community of, of people who, um, who I trust to, to spend time with these early uncertain uncertain drafts. How have you dealt with rejection? For me, I'm not as paralyzed by rejection or the idea of rejection. You know, when even when I first was starting to submit poems, you know, to, to different places, I was getting, I got rejected everywhere. Um, but I very much had like a shotgun style approach where it's just like, if you send out, you know, poems to 40 places, you know, one or two, you know, especially in, you know, when I first started submitting poems in like 2014, 15, one or two might say yes. And that's a win. Right. So I just, I didn't have any sort of like, if I don't get, you know, if I get one rejection, I'm, I don't know. And maybe that comes from playing sports and like trying out for teams and not making them or, um, or losing, you know, being on teams, you know, that like didn't win many games. I don't know. It just, for me, it was just kind of the, the tax you pay. Like it was the cost of doing business. And, uh, and, and I just, you just gotta keep moving. You just, you know, that's, that's just part of what it means to be a writer. And, and it's not a reflection of your work. It's just kind of the name of the game. What is your favorite word? It probably is constellation. Like if <laughs> thinking in those early drafts of maybe this book and even, you know, several of my books, it's, uh, I think the edit part of the editing process is like striking out everything, something being a constellation to something else. It's uh, just such a beautiful word. Like I love saying it. I love the image of, of it. Like I love, I love actual constellations. Like I'm endlessly fascinated by the idea of like using stars to paint pictures. Um, and uh, so it's probably, it's probably constellation. I use it way too much, but I gotta, I'm always pairing it back in my drafts. Clint, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so honored and it was a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 
If you like today's show with Clint Smith, author of the poetry collection Above Ground, check out my interview with Ross Gay, who Smith mentioned in the interview. Gay and I spoke about music, creative writing class, and the difference for him between writing poetry and essays. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Maggie Smith and Andrew Porter. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.